TanakhStudy.com, the podcast program in which we study Parshat HaShavua over the course of six podcasts. My name is Yitzchak Shalom. I'm delighted to be back with you this week in our study of the second half of Sefer Shmot as we begin a Parashat Ve'ele HaMishpatim, which begins at the beginning of Perak Chafalef. Today we're going to look at the first 27 psukim of Perak Chafalef and uh, briefly to justify that division. And to be honest with you, the division of Sefer Parashat Mishpatim is somewhat challenging because the first two-thirds or so of the parasha is really a law code. And the divisions of the section of the law code are not all that clear. And our division is somewhat arbitrary. Uh, when we get to the end of this podcast and identify um, where we've reached Pasuk Chavzayin, I'll give a bit of a rationale for the uh, for that division. More of a rationale will come along later on over the course of the week. Uh, critical to note that the parasha begins with the vav hachibur, the connect, conjunctive vav ve'ela hamishpatim. And in order to understand this, we have to remember what happened at the very end of Parashat Yitro that we studied together last week. And that is that Moshe uh, had been at the foot of the mountain when Bnei Israel heard some or all of the Aserat HaDibrot, of the Decalogue, directly from Hashem. And Bnei Israel's reaction was to be scared and to ask Moshe himself to enter into the cloud covering the mountain, not to ascend the mountain, but to enter the cloud covering the mountain at the foot of the mountain and to get the laws and then to transmit them to the people rather than the people hearing them directly because the people were afraid. In spite of Moshe's statements that Hashem has come to raise you up, nonetheless the people distanced themselves and Moshe went into the cloud. And the first set of commands that Moshe was given really related exactly to the issue of the location, of creating a mizbeach, a worship site, and that wherever Hashem's name is mentioned or is brought or wherever Hashem makes his presence felt, that is a place that Hashem will bless them. Uh, It is a form, in a sense, of comforting them and not to be afraid uh, of God's presence. But nonetheless, the people keep the distance. So we now continue inside the cloud as Hashem gives Moshe a series of laws. These are called mishpatim. Now the word mishpatim was related to the word mishpat or shofet. A shofet is really a leader, although a leader usually in the context, this is not true in Sefer Shoftim, but in the context of a court or juridical proceedings. And as a result of that, a mishpat, which has several meanings in Tanakh, all related, uh, can mean rules, can mean the process of adjudication, it can also mean customs. Mishpat ha'ish ha'bal izboach zevach, as we read uh, at the beginning of Sefer Shmuel. Mishpat ha'kohanim ta'am, as we read there. So it could also be a custom. Here it means the rules, uh, the rules that will be adjudicated in court, Ashutasim lifnehem, and uh, as we see, uh, unlike in up until now in Sefer Shmot, where we had relatively large pieces of text bounded by paragraphs in Mishpatim, understandably, we have sections of a few psukim, and in some cases even one pasuk, which is its own parasha. We'll identify them as we come along. The first two parashot that we have are somewhat larger, six and five psukim. 
but then it gets uh, it gets smaller than that. Identify it as it comes along. So Hashem is speaking to Moshe. These are the mishpatim that you are to place before them as they had requested. But now, being mishpatim, that means that these are laws that are going to be adjudicated in court as opposed to laws which are for every man to act on his own with, um, as we will have later on in the parasha, laws dealing with Ma'achalot um, forbidden foods, and laws having to do with uh, with chagim uh, that will come up. So the first law, strangely enough, is If you purchase an eved ivri, which could be understood one of two ways: either a slave owned by an ivri, which would then mean the slave's identity is not clear or an Evid who is an Ivri. And it becomes clear from later in context that that's the intent here. An Evid who himself is an Ivri, meaning a member of your nation, then Sheish Shanim Yavod, he shall work for six, six years. And on the seventh year, he goes out free. Chinam, the sense is free, in the sense that he doesn't have to pay his way out. Whatever money you've used to buy him has now been used up, and now he goes out free. Immediately, we are given some very powerful messages here. One is we understand that slavery is part of the economy of the times of Tanakh, and that's something that we know throughout Tanakh. Um, Second of all is that there is the possibility of one Jew owning another as a slave, or at least having that contractual relationship, And, um, and that conversely, or inverse, symmetrically, a Jew has the ability to sell himself or to somehow be sold into slavery to a fellow Jew, and that the, there are a whole series of restrictions and limitations that apply. The one that, that glares at us right away is the fact that he can only work for six years, and he has to be let out in, in the seventh year, and immediately evokes for us the image of Shabbat, which we just heard about in the Aserat Tadibrot, in which we are commanded to make sure that our slaves also rest, and there we have six days of work and a seventh day of rest. Here it's six years of work, and then on the seventh year, he goes free. He may not be made to work longer than that. Gaf here means sort of his wing, means if he comes in on his own to the relationship, then he leaves on his own, which means that if he comes in as a single man, then he leaves the house as a single man, and we'll see how what the implications of our, that are in another pasuk. If on the other hand he comes in married, then his wife leaves with him, which implies two things. The first thing it implies is that his wife enters the relationship with him, and she is part of the household of the master, whether she is merely supported or whether she also has to do work is not made clear here, but it does mean that when he leaves, she goes with him, uh, and cannot be held back uh, as part of the contract. On the other hand, im adonavi ten lo isha v'yaladalo vanim ovanot ha'isha v'yaladah tiyaladoneha v'hu yitzay v'gapo. So if the owner gives him a wife and she bears sons or daughters, then the woman and the children belong to the master. So who is this woman? This woman must be a slave girl who is otherwise owned by the master, which would mean she's not a Jewish slave girl. 
because as we will see momentarily, it is not possible within the context of the law for a man to own a Jewish slave girl who is able to produce children, able to reproduce. And therefore, this non-Jewish slave girl is given to the Eved Ivri. He has children with her. And then when he leaves, he leaves alone, and she stays behind with the children, which therefore leads to the next pasuk. So if the mass, if the slave says, I love my master, I love my wife, and I love my children, which wife and children are they? Not his wife that he came in with, but rather the wife that was given to him, and the children that he bore there, who if he leaves, will stay behind with the master, and he doesn't want to leave them. Therefore he says, Lo chofshi, I will not take the opportunity to leave as a free man. Then there is a a, a result a consequence of something we can do, then his master brings him to Ha'elohim, which is a word that will appear numerous times in Pashat Mishpatim, and contextually it always seems to mean the court. He brings him to the court, which of course where Mishpatim are happening, and he brings him close to the door, or to the doorpost, the master then takes an awl and drills the servant's ear and becomes his servant forever. The simple read in Parshat Mishpatim is now that he's there till the end of his life. Uh, and the wife and children, of course, belong to the master. And so none of them are leaving. Uh, we get another picture in Parshat Bahar where we're told that no Ivri may be enslaved longer than the Yovel, um, and that colors our understanding of what's happening here. But within this context itself, so now the first rule that we're given in the Mishpatim is not a rule about murder, not a rule about property, not a rule about uh, husbands and wives' rights, but rather about an Eved Ivri, which we would think would be something of an unlikely uh, circumstance, especially in the Midbar where we assume that everybody coming out of the Midbar is more or less on an even keel, and wealth really shouldn't be playing a role yet, and as long as they're traveling, and traveling is something of an army. So this seems to be set up with an eye to the future, to the time when people will succeed or not succeed as well in their farming of the land once we enter the land. And people will then get to a point of such desperation that they will need to be sold as a, as a slave, either to pay off a debt or to be able to have some money for their own family or for themselves. Um, critical piece to look at when you have the opportunity is to look at Yirmiyahu Perak Lamadalid. In Yirmiyahu Perak Lamadalid, Jeremiah chapter 34, which you can find on TanakhStudy.com, uh, taught in our podcast series, uh, there is a story of how there were Jews in Yerushalayim who were holding on to their Hebrew slaves for longer than the six years, and as a result of that, Yirmiyahu told them that was what was going to lead immediately to the destruction of Yerushalayim. They then let their slaves go. It's a very interesting story there, uh, if you have the opportunity to look at it. The next halacha that we see is one that buttresses what we said earlier about who this wife is in Pasuk Gimel, in Pasuk Dalid, of our parak. So beginning with Pasuk Zion is the second parasha. The first parasha we will refer to as the parasha of Eved Ivri, although we're going to come back to the Eved Ivri uh, 
uh, a little bit later, perhaps. If a man sells his daughter as a slave girl, she does not go out like the Avadim go out. Now remember, the first rule that we heard about Avadim was they go out after six years. She does not go out after six years. Does that mean she goes out longer? She's there longer? Or does it mean shorter or something else? As we will see, it is really something else. It's kind of a difficult phrase. We'll finish the pasuk and we'll look at it. So which means if she is bad, in the eyes of her master. So there's a master who bought this girl. And I'm going to, a little bit of a spoiler alert, the girl is, we will say, seven years old. And he purchased the girl as an amah ha from her father, who we will assume is destitute. Nonetheless, in all circumstances, our tradition looks very uh, disdainfully on a father who would do this. Uh, but nonetheless, he has that right. Uh, so if she is bad in the eyes of her master, and how do we see that? Asher lo Now here we have an interesting phenomenon of kriuchtiv, which is the way that the verse is written and the way that it's read. Uh, we're familiar with the general phenomenon of kriuchtiv through Tanakh, where the written tradition uh, varies a little bit from the way that it is read, sometimes a little bit, sometimes a lot. That's different reasons. But here we have a not unique, but somewhat uncommon phenomenon of kriyotiv, where the kriyotiv actually are pronounced the same way, but have opposite meanings. Asher lo, the ktiv is lamed aleph, which means did not. The kri is lamed vav, meaning understood to be to him, which is the opposite. So the way the ketiv would read, and they end up saying the same thing. Um, with Lamed Aleph, which means in that he did not take her or, or uh, establish a special relationship with her as in one for marriage, one we refer to as Yi'ud, which is des- destiny. So he did not destine her to him, as it were, which means that she was in the house and the master had the opportunity to marry her and decided not to because he didn't like her. Then vehefta, then she is redeemed. Now, how is she redeemed? So the midrash chachamim is that that means that she or her family can then participate in a forced buyout of her contract, which is prorated, something called giraon kesef. The simple read of it is though is that if he does not want to marry her, then she goes free. One thing he can't do is now. To a meaning to a foreign nation, he cannot control her to sell her because then that would be an act of treachery. In other words, he took this girl in, he paid money for her for her services, but the assumption was that at the end of that period he would marry her. So when is the end of the period? They said it's not six years. The end of the period is when she reaches marriageable age, which in the ancient world was roughly twelve years old. So if she was eight years old when he bought her, he, the assumption would be he bought her for four years and would pay in kind. If she was four, then it would be a much longer period. Um, and, uh, and then when the time comes, he decides he does not want to marry her, then she, he must go free and she is not his property and he may not sell her to anybody else. Now, la'am nochri here seemingly would mean to a non-Jew. 
but that can't be the case because in any case he's not allowed to sell her to an Anjou. The Amnochri here seems to mean to any other person. He's not allowed to then go and take this girl that he bought and sell her further. She's not property. She's not chattel. And therefore, <clears throat> we now go back and read the phrase in the beginning of Pasuk Chet with the Kree, and we'll see that it ends up meaning the same thing. Lo meaning to him, meaning it, it was evil in her eyes that he had taken her and designated her as a wife, but he didn't want to. In other words, he never acted on it. Then, again, he may not sell her out. And so then Pasuk Tet stipulates, Vim leave no ye adena. If he, on the other hand, arranges the marriage with his son, then ki mishpat tabanot yasela. Then he has to give her mishpat. And here we go, mishpat, with a different meaning, which is the normal custom, as we saw in Pasuk Aleph, when I mentioned the various meanings of mishpat. Ki mishpat tabanot yasela. He has to give her the normal custom of girls, which means whatever girls are given, as for, for their marriage, she has to get equally as a regular wife and not some sort of second-class concubine-type wife or common-law wife, uh, which means now that there are three options. He can marry her himself, he can marry her off to his son, or he has to let her go. And now, im let's say he takes another wife, which means he marries her, but he also takes another wife. Remember, polygamy is permitted in the Torah. Uh, here we come to three terms which there is a well-known dispute about their meaning uh, but the bottom line is that these are three base obligations that every husband has towards his wife and therefore if the master takes another wife then this girl cannot be diminished she cannot have her she'er kasut and ona Yigra cannot be diminished. She cannot get any less because he could argue, say, well, she was a slave girl that I married and the other one was a wealthy uh, daughter of a clan, member of the clan that I married. And so therefore I'm going to give her less. No, you may not give her any less. You cannot diminish from her regular rights. And now we'll go back to Sherek Sutan Ona in a minute. The Imishlosh Ela. So if he does not do any of these three things, which we would think is Sherek Sutan Ona, but that doesn't actually make sense here. So it means Imishlosh Ela Lo Yasela, which means if he does not marry her himself, if he does not marry her to his son, or if he does not work with the family to redeem her, in other words, in a prorated buyout, the Hefta, then. She goes out for free and there's no money, which means when the time comes that she's a marriageable age and he doesn't marry her, he doesn't want his son to marry her, her son doesn't want to marry her, and they have not made an arrangement in the meantime, then at that point she goes out for free and again there is no money and the same phrase as um, that we had in Pasuk Bet about the Eved Ivri, this girl goes out and that's defined as Ein Kasef. <clears throat> now, just a moment about this. Uh, Rambam reads, based on the Gemara in Masachik Tubot, one opinion in Tubot, that She'er refers to, to a food, Ksut refers to clothing, and Ona is conjugal rights. 
and uh, and that seems to be to be the way that it's read in the famous Machlokut Rabbi Yehudan Rameir about a person giving Kiddushin Almanat She'en Lachalai Sherek Sut Ve'onad. It seems that sharing Sut are financial obligations to feed one's wife and to clothe her, and Onah is the personal intimacy obligation, which is not a financial one. Um, on the other hand, there is another opinion in Ketubot, and this is the one, the, the one that Ramban adopts in his commentary right here on, uh, on uh, Shemot, in which She'er, Ksut, and Ona are all uh, expressions, are all components of intimacy itself. She'er meaning Kiru Basar, that the husband has to uh, be willing to and agree to uh, be intimate with his wife with nothing between them, as it were. Uh, Ksut is bedclothes, and Ona is the intimacy itself. Either way, these are the three obligations, and famously Rambam in Hilchot Ishut, indicates that a man, when he marries, has ten obligations towards his wife. Three of them mean HaTorah, and they are She'er Ksut and Onah, and another seven of them which are Midra Banan, including Purkan and Kvura, etc. Uh, and so that is the Parsha of the Amaha Ivriyat. Continuing on, the law code now goes into very short, almost staccato rulings that seem to uh, go to larger issues. Um, uh, which is uh, about murder, and we're going to take a look at the murder code here um, and conclude with that. But just to note that it is interesting that the very first law that were presented in the Mishpatim, again, is not murder, but rather comes a little bit later, but rather is about slavery. And it seems to be a very powerful statement, which is, you yourselves are just coming out of the experience of slavery. Be aware that in your future lives, slavery, even of other Jews, to you, may become a reality. You may be in a circumstance where a Jew comes and says, I need to have money and I'm willing to come into that contract to you. You have to be aware that uh, that the relationship between master and slave here is very different than what you experienced in Mitzrayim. And you cannot take the experience that you had at the receiving end of the taskmaster's whips and turn it around to your fellow Jew here as a slave. And even we will see in the next podcast how that, how that carries forward even towards our relationship with non-Jewish slaves, which is a possibility that comes up. But we will go a little bit further in the law code here in this podcast. And you see now, Makeish vameit motumat. If a man strikes another man and he dies, then indeed that man shall die, meaning that man, meaning the killer will die. But if he did not lay in wait, and God somehow brought them together, then I will give you a place to flee to. And so the first pasuk, uh, seems to be speaking about a premeditated murder where a man strikes another man and he dies, the killer has to be killed. But on the other hand, if he did not lay in wait, and it was just some sort of a happenstance where God brought them together, and the very famous comment of Rashi here, uh, picking, up, picking up from the Gemara in Masachat Makot, where God somehow gets two people together in the same place, one of them killed intentionally and was never caught, and the other one killed by accident was never caught, 
And so the one who killed by accident goes up on a ladder, and the one who killed on purpose is sitting under the ladder, and one thing leads to the other, and the one who killed on purpose is killed, and the one who was up on the ladder ends up having to go into exile, into Galut, the Aremi Klat, which is Hamakom Asher Yanus Shama, that I will give you a place to flee to, and that is something that is explicated in Parshat Mas'e and in Parshat Shoftim, uh, the, the rules of the Irmi Klat that they're hinted to, actually explicated here, but very, very briefly, they're sort of adumbrated here. Samtila Chamakoma Sheyanus Shama. But we come back to the intentional killer with an interesting law. So if a person seethes, the word Yazid really means to boil over, so he seems to be very angry and he decides to kill kill another fellow, but he uses trickery and cunning to, to kill him, then you take him away from my Mizbeach. Remember, the Mizbeach was just mentioned just before Mishpatim. The, the, this law code began with something of a preface introducing the Mizbeach. He said, you take him away from my Mizbeach in order to kill him. So here we have somebody who's acting be'orma, meaning with trickery. And he kills somebody, and then he immediately goes and tries to take sanctuary, an institution we're familiar with, and one that we see play out later on with both Adoniyahu and Yoav in the beginning of Malachim, Sefer Malachim, where they try to save their lives by holding on to the Mizbeach. Uh, and the Torah here says you don't let somebody take sanctuary, even at the Mizbeach, if they are killers. And you take them away from the Mizbeach and kill them. You don't kill them at the Mizbeach, you take them away from the Mizbeach, and then they're executed. <clears throat> uh, the interesting thing is that in the laws of the Mizbeach that we saw at the end of Parshat Yitro, there was also an emphasis on removing the Mizbeach from contact with death, in the second to last pasuk, when it says that if you have a mizbeach of stones, you may not use hewn stones, because you lifted up your sword on it and defiled it, because the sword is used for death. So in the same way here, a killer cannot take refuge at the mizbeach. We will move him away from there in order to kill him. The mishpatim continue with things related, related to killing and to the essence of human life. Now one strikes his father or his mother, he is killed. Clearly makeh here does not mean if he murders because he would already be killed for killing anybody, but rather he strikes his father or mother, he's killed. If a man steals kidnaps another person and sells him, right? And then he is found, then motumat, then the kidnapper is killed. And if somebody curses his father or his mother, then indeed he is killed. And this sort of brings us um, almost to the end of of the first section of the of the Mishpatim, after the Evan and the Amah, there are all these laws dealing with murder. So what is kidnapping doing in the middle of here, uh, middle here? The Ibn Ezra and other Rishonim uh, give very interesting explanation to it that notice that the law of kidnapping is stuck right in the middle between two laws about offense towards parents. Then we had Gonev, and then in Pasuk Yodzain, Mekalel Avivimomotumat, which is exactly the same Pasuk as Tetvav, with just Mekalel instead of Makeh. If a person curses his father or mother, then he will be killed. So the Menezer explains 
that you can imagine if somebody kidnaps a child and the child is raised and has no idea who his parents are and ends up cursing or striking somebody and not knowing as his own father or mother that he's striking or cursing, then in that case, the sin devolves really on the kidnapper, and that's the connection of Gonev Ishum Kharov and Imsaviyadom Uchumad being plugged in the middle there. Sort of an interesting explanation to that oddity. Um, the, the piece uh, about murder of free men ends with this. So if two people are fighting, and one strikes, his, strikes the other with a stone or with an egrof, which the Rishonim are divided as to what it means. We understand it in modern Hebrew as a fist, but it could be a kind of, another kind of a stone or some kind of a weapon. So a man strikes another man, but the, the victim does not die, but rather he is in bed. If he gets up and walks around outside on his walking stick, then the make is cleansed, meaning he's off the hook for killing, meaning this fellow was struck and now is in bed and now he's out of bed, which means that at this point, the, the murderer, the potential murderer is off the hook because this fellow didn't die. Now, the halacha then deals with, well, it should be obvious that if he got up, then, uh, then the murderer is off the hook because the guy didn't die. So it must be talking about a case where the fellow got up, walked around, and subsequently had a relapse and died. And then the doctors have to estimate whether or not the relapse was really indeed a relapse from the original striking, in which case the murderer would be held liable. Or it was something new, in which case the murderer is off the hook. But in any case... That the attacker does have to pay shevet, which means the amount that this fellow lost while he was lying in bed, lost from his work, and he has to be healed, which the uh, famous Midrash Halachai here, which is Mikan Shinitan Rishut La This gives permission to doctors to be involved in healing, uh, which is theologically a, some, something of a, a problematic. Uh, approach. Uh, see the passage about Chizkiyahu uh, and the Tosefta and Psachim. But the, from here, Chachamim learned two forms of payment that somebody has to pay upon any sort of assault, and that is Shevet and Ripui, lost wages and healing and medical bills. What we're going to see in the next section is two pieces one about the relationship of these laws to special. Um, classes of people, including slaves, including issues of a uh, pregnant woman and, uh, and, and a miscarriage, and that will lead us into the next larger sugya, which is what we refer to as nizke mamon, property damage as opposed to personal damage. We'll pick that up in the next podcast. In the meantime, everybody should have a wonderful day.